it's horrible behavior. It's horrible behavior as a husband. It's horrible behavior as a boss. It's horrible behavior as a creative director to your firm, as a partner, all of it. It's stupid. term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. Sure. Welcome to They Coined It. I'm Roberta Lip. I'm Dan Jasper. And we cover Mad Men episode by episode. And we have a Patreon. So if you would like to support the show, uh, come on over to patreon.com slash they coined it pod where you get early episodes and extra mini episodes and then uh at tci madman pod on instagram and twitter and find me on tiktok talking about madmen sometimes i am doing that it's weird <laughs> <laughs> so this is that this is that episode right this is <laughs> that, that R- rashomon episode and i guess that refers to uh there was a film called rashomon it's a technique right Yes, I I disagree with the premise that it's a full. I feel like it's a Rashomon episode in a, as in a jumping off way. Rashomon, the film which I have not seen, but I am familiar enough, and I there was a thirty something that exactly did it. Oh. Took the same events, two or three or four different ways from two or three or four different. Oh, angles. same events, right? Same events, as opposed to the same time frame, which is what that's this right, is. which is yeah, what yeah. this is. Okay, fair enough. The Trumont Rashomon moment is the Megan getting pulled out of the meeting. That's right. Yeah, there's and and I think that they're meant as cues to the viewer as to what we're seeing in relation to what we've already seen. So we hear Roger repeat a line or two. Yeah, that's your first like, oh, wait, we just backed up. But if you really were watching carefully, the clues because and and I, this is partly because we do this podcast that we're we are keenly aware of the fact that Mad Men does not tell one story, does not follow one person. Most Mm. shows, most one-hour dramas don't, right? Mm -hmm. So the clue is you're really just following Peggy the whole time. It was in my second viewing this time, this second viewing this week. Following Peggy or or that she's the cue? The whole first two, three, four, five scenes is just with Peggy. It doesn't move around. She's the first third. Right, but that's what I'm saying. That's a clue. That's a clue that this episode is different structurally. Oh, but I see it's what you're saying because we're so focused crew. on Peggy, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's so true, and you don't know that until you move on into the next pieces where we're just with Roger, and then and we're then just you're like, them. oh, we've just yeah. been with Peggy the whole time. That's weird. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's easy to miss. Yeah. Yep. For sure. So far away places, written by Semi Chellis and Matthew Weiner, directed by Scott Hornbacher. Original air date was April 22nd, 2012, and takes place approximately September 8th and 9th, 1966. Yeah, it's with the three different segments, you do start to... Everybody was supposed to take Friday off, or what? I think it's Friday. It is Friday. Thursday is the day we're really watching. Friday is the day they all come back to work yes. at the end which they were, you know, Jane was like, you were supposed to take the take the day, the weekend off or the day off. Oh, right. And that was Don's intention as well when they left. Well, let's make a long weekend of it. So it's the workday Thursday into Friday morning the 9th. Is what I think. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. 
And so this is, for for lack of a precise term, a Rashomon-type episode, a day-into-evening sequence that is experienced from three dis- three distinct perspectives. Peggy's long-awaited pitch to Hines goes poorly. Roger and Jane take acid and decide to split up. Don drags Megan on a business trip to upstate New York to visit Howard Johnson's. Just that. Just, just a little, that. Just a little narrative. Let's start with Peggy. Yeah, let's start with Peggy. Yeah. I mean, this this is a weirdly easy episode for us to do because it it just bang, bang, goes bang. in order, then it goes in order, then it goes in order. <laughs> but I love the little glimpse of Peggy and Abe that we get, right? Things are unpleasant. Yeah. Well, it's, it's unpleasant for, for in a number of ways, or it's interesting in a number of ways. And And what I find interesting is, first, Peggy just can't turn it off, right? That's what we see, is that there is no... And and this circles back a couple times. You know, there is no line. The membrane between work and life for her basically doesn't exist. And that's no good for Abe, who wants to go see movies and wants to go, you know, have a, have a girlfriend. And on the other hand, this is the pitch. You know, he picked a hell of a morning to be like, why you got to be like this every day? <laughs> You know, she's like, but today's different. He's like, no, it's not. And it is. (laughs) So there was that also. But for the most part, this was Peggy not being great. But I just, that was the thing. the day after the pitch to say, see, you're still like this. Exactly. Like, this was the pitch. (laughs) That would have been, yeah, pro tip to Abe. (laughs) But, But we also see just, you know, the first glimpses of her development as a professional and as a person. And some of these immediate characteristics that are very Don-like. Very <laughs> Don-like. Where's my violet candy? Right? Yeah, well, that. that was right. Yeah, the, the, the callback right the to bat. the violet candy was it was no subtle clue to the connection to Don and Don's father. I mean, there's a legacy of terrible there, right? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Well, it, well it's, uh, you say it's not so subtle. On the other hand, when does it get referenced? It got referenced once. Five years ago, yeah, it's fair, fair enough for three years, whatever. It's I season call that two. Subtle, you no, know, you're to right. The casual, casual. I never viewer. forgot this. The violet candies. I totally. just never. Yeah, that's just one of the, you know, million ways that Mad Men rewards careful watching. But the, yeah, this whole obsession with the work and the pitch and what's coming up, combined with with the candy and all that is uh, is really interesting. But we do get to see the pitch you know this is about to happen everyone's kind of getting ready and and everyone's like on edge right in that in that pre pre-room I, I what i saw i mean yes but i also saw and maybe this was also a, a hint at sort of where the episode was going to go but with these four characters she comes in ginsburg's on the phone so then it's the two of them then stan it looked like a bedroom farce almost the way everybody came in and said their own thing and talked about their own thing because then Megan comes in and if you look at the again the costumes in that room and the colors it was like it was like a little crayon box and everybody was their own thing and she comes in and whoa you won't believe it's like nobody kind of came in took the temperature of the room which is very real life right you sort of burst in and you're like you guys I can't and everybody's like you guys I'm I'm, I have a you know each one did that this team is not synced no, and it was, but it was so real life. Oh, it's how it is all the time. But in Mad Men, that means something, right? It it is a it is a an omen for the pitch, right? I mean, they're not synced. It's it's reflected visually in a in a very different way at the very last shot of the episode where Don is watching, uh, and and 
everybody goes down the hall and crosses and you've got Megan with the two, those two guys going hmm. right to left and Peggy goes left to right. That felt like a bookend to this somehow. Oh, yeah. No, that's interesting. Exactly. Because Megan's on a different team. We'll get there. For sure. For sure. And I mean, in that case, it's those are the two women in Don's, the two most important women in Don's life going in different directions. We'll get there. But everyone's on edge for their own reasons. And, and with Ginsburg at this point, he's just upset that he doesn't have privacy. That was his, that was his uh, complaint. Not a very realistic expectation if you're having a work phone call in a shared space. But yeah, anyway. no, I think Ginsburg's just Way. perturbed. You know, <laughs> yeah. he does. You know, the validity is notwithstanding. Well, I think the pri- actually now that you just said that the privacy issue is probably with his father, and he just projects yeah. it onto Peggy in that moment, right? Yeah, exactly. It was irrational toward Peggy, but yeah, that that's such as life. But they're all on edge going into this pitch. And to make matters worse, Don, and this is where we don't realize that we're going to get more of the picture. But Megan basically walks in and says, hey, guys, I'm, I'm Don needs me for to go up to upstate New York and see Hojo's bye. Yeah, I think he sticks his head in for a minute. Uh, and then the next thing, you know, she's out of there and they're like, you're not coming to the pitch. And, you know, it's. One of the things we never learn is what was Megan's role going to be on the pitch? Mm-hmm. We know it wasn't going to be much. She's a very junior copywriter, but she was going to be there. Yeah, that's the value. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not I'm not criticizing that there was value. We we never know. Did they have I mean, they obviously didn't have to do a big scramble like, oh my God, what are we gonna do without you? But at the same time, uh, we're we're never going to know if her absence affected the pitch in any way. We do know that Don's probably did. <laughs> C- correct. I think that um, I-, I think it's almost a given that it affected her more than the pitch. I mean, yeah. by, you know, it affected her at all. The pitch was not I-, I don't believe the pitch was affected at all, because how many times is a junior person there who probably worked on the creative, worked on some, you know, was in the meetings and they say, come to the pitch. But. You're going to be silent. Keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very, very, very likely what her what her place would have been. But you need to. But you need as a junior copywriter, you need to be in those pitches to, to learn. See how it goes. Yeah. Don's not doing her any favors. We know that right before we even get to the rest of the bit. We know Don's not doing her a favor right now. And it doesn't do any favors to her relationship with the team, which Don does to not give value. A shit about right. And she does. And you know, it just you know every every every. <laughs> Continues to diminish, right? Maybe we'll have something to say about Don by the end of this discussion. Maybe. Um, but haunted yeah, by this episode. I'm telling you, I've been haunted by this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's what that's what we see. And and everyone's on edge, put off kilter. She goes into the pitch. She has to do it herself. And splat. <laughs> just, just, you Well, know. that guy's a dick. He's a dick. He's a dick. He's a dick. It was a great presentation. It was a great concept. It was a great ad. The second great pitch, by the way. That's right. Exactly what he asked for. And then he was a dick about that. But it was exactly what he asked for, but better, mm-hmm. which is what he said it wasn't. Just a dick. <laughs> he, he was a total dick and a completely believable client. He played yeah. like everything was on was was pitch perfect. If you will. About Raymond from Heinz. What's interesting though is is as soon as he pushes back, Peggy pushes back harder 
She's loaded for bear coming into this thing. Peggy took a deep breath and pulled a Don Draper. Tried to. <laughs> yeah. It was great. You think? And I don't always back up. You know, if if you back up when Don does what he does every time and he does it well, which I don't necessarily back up, um, but I think she 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 did it as well as she could, but she she doesn't have the legs for it in anybody's eyes. I think it's kind of like you know pulling a uh, a steal of home if you're the manager of a baseball team and you do this risky steal of home. It's great if it works, and if it doesn't work, it was a stupid decision. And so with Peggy, who- You're seeing my blank face on that one, but okay. Fair enough. You I mean, I know what home risky is. Risky plays. Um, no, it's it's it, it, it's great if it works, but it's a high-risk maneuver because you're not. it's not going to end well if it doesn't work. There's no neutral ground there. And in Peggy's case, I don't know. When Don does it, there is some art to it. There's some poetry to Don. You either, Jesus lives in your heart or he doesn't, right? I mean, there's- there's got to be some element of that that gets the client off balance in order to in order to give ground. That's what Don's really good at. I don't think Peggy was artful in her pushback. I think she was guns a blazing, bull in a china shop approach that was not very artful. And I, I don't have the exchange and all the all the language that she used, but I just thought she was basically saying, "No, this is good. You know, it's good." like it. And it was it was much less nuanced than the success we've seen folks like Don have. Well, what she said was you know you felt something. That was a callback. Sure. To, you know, what Don has said to Peggy. You feeling something is what matters, yeah. I I, I don't disagree that it wasn't excellently executed. Don had to try it a first time also. Mhm. Now, Don may have been more artful the first time. We won't ever know. He might have struck, you know, he might have had a lucky day and not been as artful the first time. But <laughs> Peggy, Peggy made a choice to not just take it this time. She was left in charge. Don has not been fighting for these things. She, she, and she didn't, you know, she took a shot. I, I'm, you're right. I'm not saying, I'm not saying she did it as well as Don Draper. We have seen do it. But again, he was young once. <laughs> he was inexperienced once. And she's not a white man. And it didn't work. And Ken, as we've already talked about, Ken was like, I will take you to dinner and a show. That's a big deal from Ken. Yeah, for sure. They all come there alone. And gathered in a circle, they suddenly feel included. They're safe from whatever is out there in the night in the darkness. So down in flames goes Peggy. Ken's going to try and save whatever's left. What I find interesting isn't just what happens to Peggy or Peggy's experience herself, but how she responds to it. Her response is just fascinating. She she is trying to process this. She knows she, as angry as she is at the client, I can only imagine that she feels guilt, right? Deep down, she knows that she was the cause of this. And she, again, more mirroring of Don. She walks right past Bert Cooper, yep. the, homeless, the homeless man in the lobby, announces she's going to the movies, which Bert sees as, <laughs> he loves that. Even before that, though, she got she went into her office and got a drink. And actually, you even saw going before the pitch, 
she she had a cigarette and she doesn't she's not a regular smoker. So you're seeing this sort of behavior behavior <laughs> and definitely the Don Draper thing, the laying on the couch and the going to the movies and telling Burke she's going to the movies. That's right. right. That's right. And by the way, she goes into Don's office for that drink. Right. That's right. <laughs> even more even more to the point. But yeah, Bert game recognizes game and Bert, you know, approves of the 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 matinee movie. Uh and out to the movie she goes. What is it called? Uh It's Born Free. Born Free. Okay, I've never seen it. I know I I feel it was a big deal. And I, I seem I, to remember I, I, it. I do know that. Yeah, yeah. So this is 1966, but I feel like we, I don't know if they showed it to us in school. I don't remember actually seeing it, but I feel like it was talked about. Maybe it was on TV. Like this was a big deal. I think so too. Like a nature movie, uh, nature kind of in its own element, I think was a big thing. Yeah. Becoming a big thing. I think it was a book first, then a movie. Anyway. National Geographic, that whole thing. It had a painful theme song that was a huge hit. As free as the wind blows. And there's a hand job in the movie. <laughs> yes. I don't, knew, I don't know if you caught that the first time. Penis free from within my pants. Pants. Okay. <laughs> Look. <laughs> Peggy goes out, smokes a dube with this stranger behind her who sidles up next to her. And, a well played uh, stranger. Yeah. She's she's down. She's down with the plan. Yeah, um interest it's just an interesting she needed to feel in control. She needed to make someone happy. She could not make Heinz happy. Well, but I think that's more control. I don't think she gave one two shits about this guy's happiness. No, no, no. She, it, it wasn't she personal. She needed to know that she knows how to do what she knows how to do. And this was a way to do that. And it was a way to be detached. There was no emotion. And she had to detach herself from, I mean, presumably she loves Abe or has very strong feelings for Abe. All of that. She pulled a John Draper for sure. <laughs> so in every way. No, I, I, I look at it as, you know, the stress with Abe, certainly it's been building up. So it's not like there's just some place for her to go, you know, home is a haven, but it's a different type of haven at different times in your life and your relationship. Look, her job and that pitch and what she absolutely failed to do was to satisfy her client, her boss. Mm. And not only did she not satisfy, it got ugly in how dissatisfied <laughs> that her, her target was. What we didn't say is, before she leaves the office, before she goes to the movies, Pete tells her she, she's officially off the account. Yeah, insult to injury for sure. Yeah, I kind of looked this as I, I kind of looked looked at this as like, well, Peggy's satisfying someone today, and I don't I don't mean that flippantly or even in a sexist way. I actually mean it in the sense of no, it, it can be very demoralizing to feel that your job is to make people happy when everyone around you is unhappy. And between the pregame and how disconnected everyone was, bad teamwork and a poor pitch that she felt responsible for, sometimes just going out and make someone, making someone happy is a little bit of what you need in a weird way. So I'll leave it at that. But I don't. I think it's more control. I, I'm just sticking with that. Well, what's undeniable is Peggy is left-handed. <laughs> she, she, she did the crossover. Coiners, coiners, coiners. In the notes, in the Google sheet, there's a bullet point. Peggy is left-handed. I say, Dan, 
We forgot the movies. You got to make sure we talk about going to the, oh my God. Is we didn't that, forget nothing. Is that what that meant? <laughs> <sighs> well, listen, we're paid to be observers of this show. Yes. So pa- Paid. <laughs> <laughs> but, but listen, I, I think it was both realistic to a degree, but then also fit the character and fit the moment for the show perfectly. Everything we've just talked about in terms of Peggy's behavior, Peggy being Dawn, but also back in Mystery Date, she she asks Dawn, "Do I act like a man, or do I need? Do, do I, I now? I don't remember." Yeah, do you think I act like a man? Do, do you think I act like a man? There's that question, and you're acting a lot like Don Draper today. I mean, <laughs> this this is just. But these are intentional, and these are meant to be to show just how connected she and Don are. I mean, I, I don't know that it's more than that. And it's been going on for, you know, four seasons now. I think it's more than that. Peggy, sure, Peggy is connected to Don, but Peggy is doing damage to her own relationship, whether Abe knows about it or not. This it does something for her own self-esteem. I mean, there is a there is a connection for Don, but she's not sitting there thinking about Don. That's a metaphor. That's an analogy. That's part of what we're looking at. But there's also, you know, some destructive behavior, some constructive behavior. I mean, you can look at it either way. She's doing mm-hmm. some damage, but she's also, again, taking, she's just having some agency. Like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do what Don Draper would do and go, you know, and take it as far <laughs> as I want to take it and not one bit further and yeah. wash. I love the scene of her washing her hands. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that's you know? another Draper move, right? right yeah. Before you, oh, God. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm going to, I'm going to go to the movies today and see what happens. That's basically, <laughs> see, see what life presents yeah, me. Yeah, I don't think she had a plan, but. No, 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 no. But the opportunity presented itself. That'd be some plan, but no. Yeah. And I'd like her to tell that plan to Bert as she's leaving. I'm going to the movies and give some stranger a hand job, Bert. I'll be back at three. But no, I agree. No plan there. You see me at home, for Christ's sake. You stare at me when I'm sleeping. Uh, I don't want to see you anyway. I just want to use the photocopy. For what? I'm building my case. She comes back. That's when she washes her hands. It was a good little psych out because it looked like she was washing her hands directly afterward in the movie theater. Right. But, but you're no, actually back, back in the, the office. office. Yeah, it was great. It was a great. It was a Maybe great. get the subway off your hands, too. That's right. So Ginsburg and his dad and the dad does this whole come on thing, right? I don't. I didn't it see was. it. I didn't see it that way. I think I think old men have been doing what they think is harmless flirting with young women and friends of your friends of your guy. I, I didn't see it as a come on so much. I don't as- mean like he wanted to take her home that night. I mean, I, I mean, a harmless flirting thing in his mind, but I mean, it's gross and inappropriate and, nonetheless. Yeah, um, but 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 that's just the shit we all have been dealing with since we were little girls and that hasn't changed much yet. Yeah, so <laughs> but it is it was it was more Ginsburg sort of feeling in a fishbowl, I think also. Right, more of the privacy stuff. I don't even really know what they were talking about, to be honest. I don't know that it matters. It's all friction between the two of them and the dad being too perchy, too close, too on top of Michael Ginsburg and Ginsburg not liking it. And if you have a son like Michael Ginsburg, you might know that you need to protect this individual out in the world, even if you're a little little off the (laughs) the way the father might be. Who knows? You don't know that the father even recognizes it. You maybe, don't know. Maybe not. People, we don't you know. know. Families, we don't know a thing about them. Family systems 
Truly. You know, he could just see that his his son is, is wonderful and misunderstood and has bad luck, and we don't know. Well, uh, right. We, we learn a little bit about that more in a moment in the show. Uh, but I'll just notice that – I'll just note that <laughs> Peggy refers to Ginsburg as Ginsburg to his dad. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Which is awesome. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Great note. Great note. <laughs> but we do. We see them working late. She starts by talking about nice to meet your dad or something or other, and Ginsburg launches into this. He's not my dad. That's where it starts. <sighs> yeah. And and I don't listen, I don't want to get into you you may wish to, but I'm I don't look at it from the standpoint of every single thing Michael says, what does it mean or what is he referring to? He's basically laying out this origin story for himself. But he does it in a way where he he casts doubt on the story as he's telling it. So we don't know what to take and what not to take. He starts with, I'm from Mars. <laughs> yeah. So we're pretty sure. That's an origin story. That's not accurate. <laughs> we, we can. We can from correct. the jump, it, it reminds me of what we've talked about so many times about dreams. You are right off the bat destabilized from how much of this is fact, how much is fiction, what's fantasy, is he... How much is he serious? What does he believe? You are destabilized that from the moment he says, I'm from Mars, and he maintains a seriousness. We don't know what's what, and it's almost not worth breaking down. Well, yeah, that that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and when this aired in 12 and the, the blog, Basket of Kisses, was in full swing, Someone mentioned on that blog, I do re- I do remember this, and I had never heard it before, but I've heard it many t- – I've seen much more reference to it in the decade since. Mm. This cohort of individuals who were born or were young, young, young children brought into concentration camps and whose earliest memories may be from captivity during World War II, calling themselves like aliens was a – common way of describing yourself or way of describing your lived experience was like being plopped into another planet from another planet you know into the situation where you you relate to nothing nothing seems normal to you every you feel like an alien to everyone that you meet so in the larger picture of and story of Michael Ginsburg that begins to actually make a little bit of sense based on who who we've seen him be and he says I was adopted he uh, out of the, I think, Swedish... Swedish orphanage. And I was five, and I remember. Yeah. We've already established in prior episodes that Ginsburg is not a reliable narrator mm. of his of anything, of his life or anything. I was five, and I remember sounds pretty tight. We don't know who this who his father is. Was he a stranger who adopted him? Was he an uncle? Was he his father? We don't know. You know, we don't know. Right. We didn't learn that from this. But what we learned is Michael's got a lot on his mind all the time. And he's a young man. And what the, the little bit of evidence that we do have is that his dad either is Jewish or speaks Hebrew or has, you know, some... No, his father Dobbins. Oh, that's right. He was doing the prayer. So let's let's say the father is father's a Jew is Jewish, and Ginsburg is certainly culturally and and you know has, has cultural Jewishness um, uh, about him. There's reason to believe that he and his father may be blood. There's nothing to to discount that at this point. 
Except he was, except we believe the he was picked up part. in an orphanage, right? Yeah, so we so don't, we don't know so what's could, what. We, we don't it almost doesn't what. matter. It really doesn't, I don't think. I mean, it's an interesting part of piecing together this character, but no, I don't think it really matters. I mean, the, that whole idea of bringing that that type of narrative into this office mm. for this talented young writer who has gifts and has genuine neuroses about him is fascinating. Peggy's reaction was, you know, that thing where like she's laughing. She had a little bit of a, of a, of a guffaw almost. Mm. And then she's like, Oh, he's, he's just serious. He's, he's sticking with his story. She's shook by this. It stays with her, obviously, because she goes home and needs to talk to Abe. She doesn't need to talk to Abe. That is, But she references, you know, I just heard the craziest story or whatever she said. So it's still on her mind. It's, it didn't just pass right through her. She's carrying it with her a little bit. Oh, for sure. You know, sure. That, that's, that's my point. I mean, she did need to talk to him. Listen, this guy just said he was born, he was, he was born in a concentration camp. Is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah. And Abe, Abe affirms that it is. But- the Jewishness through this episode, what's the word he used in the morning? A bracha. He already referenced no, a bracha. bracha right. You know, so. there was definitely a, f- a, a few things threaded through. We'll get to Jane. That's interesting. So, yes, she, she called him because she wanted to check that story, but that was not what that phone call was. That oh, no, was, it was come come up here now. And he does. And So for Peggy's- We're getting a window into that relationship. Peggy's piece of that, of the, of this episode certainly is- the fight at the beginning, the discord, the difficulties, the trials and tribulations of her day, and reconciliation at the end. I mean, th- that's clear. There's absolute reconciliation. We know they're gonna they're gonna make up, if you will, at the end of this piece of the story. That uh, I think that I think that w- there there's a closing of the circle. That's how I looked at it of her piece. I didn't. Okay. I mean, there was a closing of the circle of her day. I didn't look at that as some kind of happy ending for their relationship. A happy ending, no pun intended. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I want to correct myself. She's not getting in communication with him. She's, you know, it was a, it was a day. It was a day with a beginning, middle and end for her. But she says, and I want to get the quote right. I think she says, I always need you. Like there's that, that's why I didn't say happy ending, but I did say reconciliation. I think there is a reconciliation. here. It just leaves me. We're looking at three relationships. The bulk of Peggy's story is not the relationship. The bulk of the other two stories we're going to talk about are the is the relationship. Okay. But in Peggy's case, listen, every time they fight, it diminishes them. That is just the truth. They had a shitty, shitty, shitty fight with each other in the morning. And it resolved with, I need you, come over and fuck me. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in, especially in the context of how she spent her day and how this whole episode is, it doesn't leave me feeling good. It doesn't feel me, make me feel like, you know what, of all these couples, Peggy and Abe, man, they've got it. No, no, no. Left me cold. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying that this puts them back on like rock solid ground. What I am saying though, is um, I don't think she called just to say, come fuck me. She called to share some of her experience because she starts with this conversation with Ginsburg, which is not <laughs> if you're if you're call, making a booty call, that is not how you start the booty call. So I think there's more to it than just come fuck me. I think come fuck me is part of it, 
and it's an it's an element, but I think there's a fuller relationship that's coming back together here. So that's my interpretation. I'm sorry, we're gonna have to miss the presentation. We have to head upstate for Howard Johnson's. Really? You're running the show. How does me sitting there change anything? And then we start over again. We don't know we're starting over again, but we get we get the Roger version of events. That's the Rashomon pivot. Uh, not pivot, but anyway, we start over. Where the seam in the story is, and we, we do start over. Roger and Jane, what a fascinating Whew. story. And oh my God, Janie Bryant for Jane's look. Holy fucking fuck fuck. Was that gorgeous? <laughs> I mean, just ridic. Cleopatra of the Upper East Side. Seriously. <laughs> the party setting, the group, this is her kind of psychiatrist. The- More assholes and ascots, by I the mean, way. <laughs> but but it but but so believable, this sort of upper middle white upper middle class. In New York, you know, intellectuals. Center of the bullseye. Trying the LSD and, oh, here's what it does. And I loved the one couple saying, we're out of here. That was really beautiful. Yeah. On a silver platter with the sugar cubes. Yeah. <laughs> Bess Armstrong as the psychiatrist or whatever she was, if you missed <laughs> it. she My so-called life fans. I loved that slice of of culture. That was and this was, a, yeah, this was evidently a real thing. Again, I, oh, yeah. I, do, I do remember... Some folks really getting into it on the blog. And again, it sparked me to to understand it better as well. I didn't have this understanding at the time. It wasn't illegal yet, number one. Mm. Number two, it was this society thing. It was, you know, before, this is summer of 66, you know, hippie and summer of love. It was a full year, maybe not a full year, but close to a year till it became like, you know, this hate Ashbury and West Coast thing. It was kind of, in these Upper East Side apartments of people dropping acid. That, that was absolutely a thing. As crazy as it sounds, it really was. Hard to imagine. It was great. They, we don't have to imagine it. That was a beautiful depiction of it. And I love that uh, that card. Everyone had to write out their, my name is Roger Sterling. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, you know. Historically You need to get accurate. grounded. You, you know, you write it on your hand, something like that. Like that was, you know, we've got, we had one babysitter and we had, that that little helpful tool, <laughs> but the idea was, this is this is beautiful. This is going to bring you together in your truth. This mm. is we've only had wonderful experiences, but then there was the little warning of your mindset is going to dictate it, <laughs> and and off you go. Off you go. The line that jumped out at me, Jane says, "I think the truth is good because it's always real." And good, like they were talking about the ethic, the morality. What is, where is truth and morality? Well, truth is always good, is what Jane says. Truth is always good because it's real. That bitter in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Jane? You're right. <laughs> you know right. what, Jane? Sometimes the truth is going to be very expensive. But <laughs> <sighs> not for her. Oh, boy. I loved it. I mean, you had the hilarity, the... Roger's acid trip, and it was only Roger's. You didn't see Jane's yeah, hallucinations. But I also love how they presented it, which was out of nowhere. We don't know that he's tripping until we start to see the effects. And maybe that's the idea. He doesn't know he's tripping until that's he opens what it's that like. bottle of Stoli. I've never done acid. Um, so, yeah, just being able to 
experience it that way and that kind of in your face. The TV kept freaking me out. Uh, the one night I ever did acid, I did it young enough that I never wanted to do it again. The TV kept freaking me out. So I would turn off the TV, but then the world had no color, but it was a black and white TV. Anyway. <laughs> and along the yellow brick road we went. <laughs> I mean, you don't know what's what. Suddenly, you know, <laughs> it's just wild. It was very, very well done. Scott, yeah. Scott Hornbacker, man. Well Absolutely. done, buddy. All absence is death if we let ourselves know it. Weren't you the one who said we were supposed to think positive? Yes. I feel like that when Roger goes to work. So this leads to the whole night. You know, it's an overnight thing where Roger and Jane... Well, they leave. They get in a cab. Yeah, they get home. The address is written down. (laughs) Yeah. And there's that whole interlude in the bathtub. First, and I I do love this. I, I love this immediately. You know, we forget. You know, Roger, nineteen sixty six. Roger's got to be. Is he sixty two? He's not sixty five. He's sixty, right? I have not done the math. But I mean, he's got a married daughter. I, I don't have the. I don't have the math. I don't have. I don't have Roger's age. Yeah, he's late fifties to early sixties. That two would make attacks. him two two coronaries. Born, you know, between nineteen hundred nineteen ten. Maybe 1905 to 1915. The Black Sox were a thing of his boyhood. The Chicago Black Sox. Real story. You know, they threw the World Series in 1919. Is that Eight Men Out? That is Eight Men Out, the story. Which I've never seen. Which I always wanted to see. Good film and But that's that story. Okay. Amazing story. Shoeless Joe Jackson. Also in Field of Dreams. Ray Liotta. That's right. So he... He hallucinates the, that he's watching the, the 1919 World Series. And it's just great writing, just great pull. You know, what is a guy of Roger's age going to recall if we're going to give him a childhood memory to, to flash back to that? And he's laughing. It was po- not that it was positive. He was delighted. He was laughing with delight. Yeah, weird, odd, all yeah, the whole but thing. Well, no, well done. What I, what I, what I was moved by in the bathtub was Jane. You're laughing at me. Yeah, yeah. You forget there's a whole human there because she's so easy to dislike. And we don't see enough of her to, to, yeah, to get past that. I've talked about this a little bit in TikTok. They've never been our protagonist. So we've never gone home. We've gone home with them, but we've never, we've, they've never been our protagonist. So we definitely don't know them as a couple. We've never rooted for them as a couple. We've never, that's not been our position in no. the, in this, in this in our fourth wall. That's right. So that was very powerful. Like that was so real for her. Yeah. And and again, the writing to put that kind of level of insecurity just right in, in the middle of everything, you know, yep. uh, with this precious time that we get with them. And they're so disconnected in that moment. <laughs> and this whole thing is supposed to connect them, which brings us to this honest, the living room floor, magenta turban towels conversation where they basically they they do honesty is is forthcoming and i think you know I, I, it's hard to know what this means i guess if you've never done it but you always hear that lsd eliminates your ego which i guess means something different for every individual on the planet but it allows you to in this case as i interpreted it to witness this these two people having a trip being able to have a conversation a real conversation that does not involve all the judgment that most regular everyday non-tripping conversations have inherently as a part of them. So to be able to talk about 
were you cheating? Was I cheating? You know, were you faithful? Do we get, do we end this thing? My, here's what my analyst said. These are all things you would never say if you're judging. Yeah. And they, and that they were saying it without judgment. They, it was, it was as beautiful as Roger thought it was. It was as beautiful as Jane had wanted it to be, except she didn't <laughs> think this was the direction it would go in. It was the promise of the LSD that there would be this beautiful truth. And there was. Yeah. She didn't remember it all, though. <laughs> Roger, Roger remembered every line. She didn't just not remember it, but when it came back to her, you know, she she couldn't stay in the beautiful truth of it, where Roger, this was very freeing for Roger. I mean, mm. what is the last line of the episode? We're going to have a beautiful day. I'm sorry, I don't remember the last line of the episode. It's going it to be a beautiful day, which you have to be high to believe after watching this episode. <laughs> well, for him it is, though. He's feeling this freedom. Yeah, he's, he's, he's high. In a, in a, in, I don't know if he's still high, high, but yeah, he's, he's under the influence, I think. I think he's free. I think he had a beautiful truth. She said it's going to be, you know, that that crushing moment when they realize they're disconnected again. Mm-hmm. He, but she says it's going to be very expensive, and he's like, "Yep," yeah. like he's he's like, "I'm, he's like, I'm yeah, good, no buddy. shit, yeah. yeah, I might sell my firm again for you, yeah." Work um, out. <laughs> so yeah, but that's it. And and you know where where I also peg this is Peggy's bit ends with a reconciliation. And this one ends with a split, Mm. you know, very explicitly. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to Hojo's. (laughs) Back in a minute. So out of the Roger story and into the Don story. Well, it's that same moment now. That one one Rashomon moment is... Don pulling Megan out of the meeting. Mm-hmm. So now we see how that goes. Well, we see the conversation in the hallway, which is what we didn't get. Right, right? that's what I'm saying. We yeah. see we see that from now from from the conversation from Don and Megan. And as far as I'm concerned, off the jump, Don's a dick. This is it's almost like it's so ridiculous. And and I'm glad that at the end of the episode, it gets called out by Bert in you know in the in the sort of denouement to all this because. It's so ridiculous for Don, now that we're seeing more of 360, what happened. It's horrible behavior. It's horrible behavior as a husband. It's horrible behavior as a boss. It's horrible behavior as a creative director to your firm, as a partner, all of it. It's stupid. This episode gives so much insight to everything we've been looking at. So I didn't. what I didn't remember is how soon in their relationship we get to this fight. But we've been questioning all along since... Since the beginning of the season, we saw a huge fight. We saw how it got resolved. It was ugly. They're figuring this out and everything's all mushed up. But I also, you go back to the scene again in the first episode where where he's, uh, she's in Megan, Megan's in Don's office and he says, open your blouse. And she doesn't really want to. But then, of course, she enjoys it because they're totally turned on by each other. That doesn't go away. Even on this ride up to Howard Johnson's, mm. she's mad at him. But then she says, tell me, you know, tell me what's going to happen in the hotel room so I can go to sleep. Oh, really? You t- that's yeah. how you took that line? How do you take it? I took it as the most boring thing in the world to me right now is talking about Howard Johnson's. So if you talk about it, it's going to let me sleep in the car. Maybe. 
<laughs> like a, like a, like kind of like a um a sass. I didn't get it as sass. I got it as peacemaking and going back to what we what she knows works. Interesting. Okay. I saw it, I saw it the other way. So, yes, Don's being a dick. But what we're getting is a little bit of this is every day. Mm. This is how they are. Don does not value Megan for what Megan values. He's not, he thinks it's all a game. He thinks, he thinks she's in on the game of we get to work together, but he, he doesn't value her autonomy, frankly, it, as a, as a, as a copywriter or as a person. It's really great points that you're making. I think where it ties in even most specifically here is Don approaches everything like a child. Mm-hmm. Diane is is a child through this entire stretch. This whole thing is Don being childish, from being excited to go to Howard Johnson's to thinking what he likes she'll like, to the fight, to how he responds to the fight and afterwards. He also treats her like a child. Oh yeah, no, no, no. He's he's immature through in every which way. Yes, but he's treating Megan like she's a child. He's infantilizing to Megan. Yeah. Like he always was to Betty. And then he was, me- and then he went divorcing Betty. It's like, you've always been a child. How dare you? So now bring it back to here. This whole thing was so gruesome to watch. Um, and it particularly, I mean, the fight was, the fight was the fight, the Sherbert and, and all of this. And we can get back to it. I promise. I've talked about. Megan really being grounded, really being present, really being tough with him. Don't you walk away from me. Don't you like she was on top of that. Hmm. What what is happening right here is he's walking away from her and they're in the middle of a fight. And don't you dare do that was a valid but sharp like you could have missed saying that Hmm. as a as the woman in this relationship. But she's not looking at herself as just the woman. You know what I mean? She's just like. I we are, I am talking to you. Right. You don't fucking walk away from me. That's not how people be. And he is. So there was that. And then we'll get. I'm just still, I'm just I can't get over the apartment scene. I kind of can't get over it, but we'll get to it. I think a big through line here, and it's not that distinct from so much of the rest of the series, because we, we keep coming back to this. But this episode has a lot of that line between work and life getting thinner and thinner. We said it with Peggy and Abe. Peggy can't do it. She's more like Don. But it's, you know, you like to work, but I can't like to work. And Don is and Don is constantly blurring that line between his life and his work. That's what this whole role play bullshit is that they're involved in. They work together, they live together, they're they're man and wife, they're they're boss and subordinate. Constant blurring of this line. And this whole trip is a blurring of the line. You like to work, but I can't like to work. You should have told me if it was so important to you. We didn't have to go. I never got the chance. It was in front of everyone. And it's embarrassing. I ruined the whole damn thing by pulling you off that crack team. I am on the team. To him, her job is just an accessory. Oh, yeah. You're right. To just support the line that got me, and I, I didn't get this exactly... She says, I'm sorry, maybe you should make up a little schedule so I can know when I'm working and when I'm your wife. Bingo. It gets so confusing. And that goes back to what I said about the dinner, the Heinz dinner. Right. Right? 
Absolutely. She, she thought she was there just as a person with a job. She wasn't, she didn't think she was a copywriter on the team at that dinner. She yeah. just was a, but she wasn't even allowed to talk about having a job because she only could be Don Draper's wife. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there was just a few lines and the writing is so precise. That whole Howard Johnson's, uh, the beginning part, especially before the leading up to the fight, mm. they walk in, Don's clearly, you know, this exalted <laughs> visitor, roll out the orange carpet and we got everything ready just for you. And they're treating him like a king. And the, he says to Megan, I hope we're going to get a sampling of all the food. I hope you like our food or something like that. We're going to bring you everything. And then I hope you like clams. She said, I like everything. That's the line. I like everything. That's Megan being good at her job. That's That's right. not a personal expression. Nope, that was a client. That was that was that was a professional statement. (laughs) I like everything. I'm here as your guest. I'm here to examine and kind of you know take it all in. So yeah, I like everything. Lay it on me. Don't don't discriminate what you show me or what I'm able to see. They go in, they sit down, and sure enough, the table's filled with tons of food. Well, and then that was another moment where she really exercised her. Uh, agency, if you will. Also, it's like, we're going to bring you up to the room. She's like, I'd really like something to eat and to drink. Yep. Right. Boom. We're doing this now because she was hungry. She had just been dragged out of work and wants, wants some damn clams. Absolutely. So they take, they sample everything. And, and this is the, this is how they're different, right? Don now sees it as a personal thing. I'm going to tell you what to eat. I want to bring up one thing before the Sherbert. When he's now in work mode, he's talking about the place and he's getting ready to write things down. And that's part of what pisses her off about the I'm confused when am I what? Yeah, you like to work, but I can't like to work. She says to him, it's not a destination. It's on the way somewhere. <laughs> yeah. That was the kind of line that would have gotten Peggy her promotion <laughs> pulled out of the focus group, right? Like that was, oh, Megan is a writer. Megan has those ins. Like that was the perfect insight. It changed Don's direction. So I just, I really want to underline that because we have not had a clue yet about Megan at work in terms of her job. Right. We can't call her a superstar, but she's not a dim light either. We've literally never known. We've seen her write a coupon and have an idea. And be eager. And be eager. But that's it. But this was, that's a legitimate fucking message. Like that's messaging right there. That's understanding messaging. 100%. So yeah, so 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 the Sherbert thing I saw in light of all of this setup. That I mean, obviously there's setup that goes back to the moment they met, you know, in some yeah. ways. But it's this it's this context of Don wanting her to personally like uh, a food in this case that she did not have a taste for, it tastes like perfume or whatever. That was, it was. very specific. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he couldn't accept that. He could. He could like. Like they're sitting there and she couldn't go, oh, you know what? You know, I don't like it, but but it'll be great for families. Or I can see why, you know, it's so great with Howard Johnson, whatever it is. It's the same color as the walls, you know, whatever it is. Um, but, but he was trying to get her to relate on a personal level, like a kid. But then he took it personally, That's like right, a kid. That's right, like a child. It's just an emotionally, a seven-year-old, basically, right? And <laughs> this is not California and the milkshake, mm-hmm. right? Another table setting, another disaster impending. And how it's handled is, you know, the first one, Megan is Mary Poppins. Oh, it's fine. We got it. And blah, blah, blah. 
And here she's like acting. Obviously, it's an act. How unhinged. Oh, she's shoveling it in. And she's, she's you know, cartoonishly sh- sh- filling her face. She's so furious at this point. Oh, my she God. Is, she has fucking had it with this guy. Boiling over. Now you don't believe me? Now you don't believe me? I've been just going along with all your bullshit. And now you, what the fuck do you think I'm up to? And I'm embarrassing I'm eating, you? Yeah. I'm, yeah. And embarrassed, it's interesting because she, because embarrassed is the word she used in, in or after the elevator scene with Andrea. <laughs> right. So yeah. Embar- this is oh, embarrassing. That's right. He clearly cannot conceive of what or why something might be embarrassing to her when it clearly is to anybody who's not emotionally seven years old. But I think it's interesting that he has that Disneyland flashback. And I think it's important to say that the milkshake and the sherbet are oh, yeah. two very, are, are two sides, not, maybe not two sides of the same coin, but they're meant to be in juxtaposition to one another. I think I might have even accidentally referred to that diner as a Howard Johnson's when we, t- when oh, we did maybe. that episode yeah, because possibly. I had it all because it looks so similar. Interesting, but they're in that same kind of banquet booth with the, you know, the whole thing. Um, so yeah, this was we're not in. We're, this is not the Halcyon days of the early part of the relationship where where I'm Mary Poppins and and you're in awe of me. Here you're virtually having me shove something I don't like down my throat. And it starts this whole sequence of the fight out to the parking lot. Now we don't know. And you tell me, Don, I forgot, I forgot that the, the actual action after the fight was Don running off. I couldn't remember how it sequenced, but Don gets angry. You're embarrassing me. And he leaves her. That was the initial action that separated them. And he gets far enough that she, I mean, you don't, we don't know. She's, she's angry enough that she could have immediately been like, I will not be in this parking lot when he gets back. It's, we don't know. We, we don't know. There are clues, but I think that, I think you're hitting a very important point, which is how long was he gone? How far did he go? Cause it makes it seem the cutting, uh, the editing makes it look like he was in the car. He could have been two miles away. Yeah. Shook his head. You know what? I'm stupid and turned around. Cause that's the way it looked. But when we get back and hear, from the waitress. Oh, talking to guys. Oh, she was toward the park. It's not, yeah, we're, we're, it's not rock solid. It's not hard evidence, but it's clues that there was a significant gap of time for her to contemplate what to do. It wasn't two miles. It had to have been more, but there is a fake out, I think. I, I wouldn't call it a fake out only because the evidence is not solid either way. She could have, listen, once he, wa- once he was gone, she could have waited a minute, him not come back. She could have seen a group of guys and been like, oh, my God, guys, can you give me a ride to town? You know what I mean? Like, we, you don't know. You don't know. The reason I see it as a fake out is we're, we're led to believe he had just left when he turned around. It wasn't like there was a fade out and a fade in where time has passed and he's, you know, mm-hmm. it's still, still light out when he gets back, Right. But we don't know, did they stop at 11? Did they stop at 3? Did they stop at 5? How much light is left in the day? It's all very confusing. But we don't know. We don't know either But way, at the so. time he turns around, it feels like it hasn't been that long. That's just the feeling. And maybe it was me. But I feel like it was an intentional uh, uh, feeling they wanted you to have was that he was turning right around. So the fact that she was gone and gone for good was surprising, at least to me. Mm. But then there's like this 
where where we do see time pass is him waiting and it's getting dark and it's the middle of the night and the trooper comes. It's all interesting, you know, life without, although life without cell phones, <laughs> she wouldn't have answered anyway. She would have probably put him on mute so that it would go straight to voicemail. She was not answering the phone at home when he was calling her at home. I think before home. she gets to the bus station to get the long ride back, she probably would have picked up. If it, if it was a chance to not have to get on a bus and nope. I'll come get you. All right. Nope. But that's that's unknowable. That's unknowable. I think once he once he didn't come back. Yeah. Once he left, frankly, once he left her there, once he she could no longer see him on the road. Could be. She was like that that could very well be. And that's why I don't think the time passage thing is 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 provable either, because she could have acted very quickly. She was furious. Mm -hmm. And that's that only gets. That gets demonstrated at home when she doesn't want to let him in. She was not going to let him in. No, that she was, was a whole. He kicked the door in. He really did. And then she ran away from it. This is the part I can't get over. Listen, we can talk about Don. I, I'm I'm not that interested in Don's little journey of panic no, I, and I, all the. Different, I agree, you know? except except the the part that I think is most relevant is he's abandoned. He feels abandoned. He's a little boy without his mommy. At a Howard Johnson's in a parking lot. Like that is. And it's his, and and it's it's his, his fault. fault. But that's, he is reacting and seeing things through the lens of a, of a, whatever age he was that he remembers being abandoned. And that's it. For me, everything from that moment on is about the little boy who's, who can't find his mommy. Alex Steed said it when we had him on as a guest and we talked about shut the door and have a seat. There's no and. (laughs) Don Draper is a monster. And we really watched Mm. that. And she ran away from him in their home like he was a monster. She's running, jumping, knocking over lamps to get away from him. This is not a game. All he wants, to your point, is to get it, to get her back in his arms. That's all he cares about. He probably did convince himself that she was dead Mm -hmm. because he couldn't imagine that she wouldn't respond to him. And she couldn't, he couldn't imagine that she left him again. calling her mom, right? With that whole ruse, right? Yeah. Uh, And Peggy, which is part of the Rashomon perspective thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yes. Yeah, he he is absolutely a monster. You know, the the deeper you dig, he is just someone with, with, unresolved trauma. I mean, that's just entirely it. He is he is missing his mommy. And look at the way he even hugs her at the end. He's on his knees and his head. Yeah, going back up into her womb. Yeah, he's is on her belly. Yeah. That's mommy. No, no, no. That's mommy. And he never says he's sorry. <laughs> that's right. And then you get the two of them laying, you know, they've now fallen and they are now in the Jane and yeah. Roger splay on the rug but he's like but it was a fight as though you know listen it honey, people fight yeah. this it happens uh people abandon each other in absolutely in this parking is all lots part of hours it. and hours from home <laughs> that was wild that was such that was your your gaslighting right there and 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 he doesn't say I'm, was it was it gaslighting do you think he thinks he's gaslighting because gaslighting is usually someone intentionally doing that I don't know that he is intentional. I think in his mind, it is what happens. He's wrong, but he's not. 
he's deluding himself, but he's not trying to bullshit her. Is it fair? Is it gaslighting is a fair question, but I don't necessarily buy your the definition of that, because I think people who are terrible liars start to I just heard a great uh, analogy in a in a interview. It was it was with Masha Gessen. It was about Ukraine. And the question is, does Putin believe the lies mm-hmm. that he tells? And what Masha Gessen said is, once you've had teenagers, teenagers come home and they lie to you. And you know they're lying and they know you're lying. But by the by the but they dig in. I am not lying. How dare you think mm. I'm lying? So that by the end of that fight, it doesn't matter. The lie and the truth have become one and the same. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Next week we're having Masha Gessen. Oh, we? <laughs> I know. That'd be oh, great. God, they're amazing. So I don't know if it's proper gaslighting, and but I don't know that you need to think you're you're lying with gaslighting, even though in the original movie, I know, I know, I know. No, I know. But my, 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 the, the reason why I mentioned that is I think he's he's in the grips of his of his own problem. Well, he's still in the own... panic of we have to get out of this, and and this never happened. The mm-hmm. monster stuff never happened. The leaving you never happened. She's yeah. saying, and he doesn't say, "I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I left you. I should never have done that." He never, ever, ever says that. Here's what got me about the her line, the final line, the. Every fight diminishes us. So first of all, it gives, again, it gives you insight into everything we've seen. It changes Mm. everything we've seen because she knows and she's known every time. Eyes wide open, this girl. Yeah. My, My views on Megan are entirely different, this viewing, and my views on Don are too. Yeah. So that that's one. But the other thing is, go back to Roger and Jane. This is what I talked about on TikTok. Listen, Roger and Jane were never our stars, right? They were never our, whatever I said before. Focal point. Yeah. But to Roger and Jane, they were, they were Don and Megan. They were madly in love. Nobody <laughs> understood but them. They had it all. They were, and everybody looked how they looked. But to Roger and Jane, they were Don and Megan. Yeah. And every fight diminished them. And we just saw how that ended. So to me, without spoilers, just inside this episode and what we've seen so far, this appeared to be the beginning of the end of Don and Megan. Hmm. Just based on what we just looked at. No, that's a great, great observation. I like also the linking of those overhead shots, which you could also include Peggy lying on Don's couch. Yes. Was an overhead shot. Yeah. Right. So they're linked that way. And I, I, I kind of see the, the triptych, if you will, of again, my, my, my take Peggy and Abe have a reconciliation of sorts. Roger and Jane have a split explicitly. And Don and Megan are, <laughs> I won't say in the middle, they're much more toward, <clears throat> to your point, much more toward the beginning of the end based on this. They're, they're diminished. They're diminished, but it's repaired. Sort of, yeah. But we know, but we know as, but listen, I think as a viewer, you can draw some conclusions, which is Peggy and Abe have a foundation that although it might have some cracks, there is something there between them that has not necessarily been like crumbling. Okay. Even with their problems, and there might be some problems that ultimately 
those cracks might grow. But I like the way that they reconciled. It was solid within the context of this part of their story to me. I know you already said that. I'm still disagreeing. So Roger and Jane, goodbye. And Don and Megan, you know, have some serious fault lines. So here's what we're going to do, guys, because this this episode has the structure it has, which has us going kind of scene by scene, practically the way the way we did with the suitcase, which we broke up into two episodes. So we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to finish the episode. We're going to do a little next morning and all the Rashomons rush a moan together. I don't that I verbed. Okay, we'll be back. We're going to finish the episode, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. next morning (laughs) the sun comes up and don sees i guess this harsh note from bird on some piece of creative which don knows is crazy that bird is leaving him notes on creative goes and sees him and wise old wise old owl bert cooper yoda bert this um this had the feeling to me like in 723 when bert is sitting behind don's desk and reminds him you you might say I know I know some things about you. Would you agree? I know a few things about <laughs> you, and that kind of also you can't bullshit a bullshitter. But he just calls Don out and just says you're letting you know. A, a, well, he starts out by saying a client left here unhappy, Mister Draper, <laughs> and uh, and that's unacceptable. And says you are on love leave and no and, and basically states all the things that we've been observing silently. He said you're letting. A girl? You're letting a little girl? Do you remember the line? A little girl. You say basically you're letting a little girl run everything, referring, referring to Peggy. Is it referring to Peggy or is it referring to Megan? I think I think explicitly it's 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 referring. But it's to a Peggy. fair question, isn't it? It's a fair question, but I, I think as the uh, viewer, we can we know a little Megan is seeping in there in terms of our interpretation. But no, Bert is not mentioning is not referring to Megan. I don't think. It, it is absolutely fair to that it's open for interpretation. The membrane between life and work is getting rubbed out, you know, constantly here and more so. So, yes, I think it's totally fair question to ask. And we can look at it both ways. My point is the character of Bert was referring to Peggy. But he talks about the love leave in the same batch, too. I'm just saying I'm not saying there's an I'm not even saying there's an answer. And I'm definitely not saying you're wrong. I'm saying it's there for us to take both ways if we want to. Don would do well to take it both ways. Yes. Is the point. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and that's the that's the 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 the, the period at the end of the sentence. Yes. Don would do well to understand it both ways. And uh, he is on love leave and he is not paying attention. We've been saying this all season. Don is lazy. He's sloppy. He's whatever the whatever the adjectives are, and not paying attention to things. And that's what Bert is not so politely reminding him. Don shit the bed by by his absence. And you know, what we didn't mention that's kind of fun is what we end up finding out, figuring out later is that Roger wanted a bachelor's weekend with Don. Because he, his marriage just ended five minutes ago. Literally, five minutes ago. But Don's response was, that's none of your business. You're on love leave. That's none of your business. And Bert says, no, this is my business. There's that yes. back and forth again. Bert's still talking about Peggy and Megan. But he's uh, lovely referring to Megan, of course. But Bert's the one saying, it doesn't matter. You're not doing your job. So this is all my business, right? And that, if, if this wasn't affecting your job, I could give a 
shit about your wife. That's right. But, but it is, and I do. So great ending. Great, great ending, especially with, as you referred to, the, the team walking one way and Roger coming in at the end. <laughs> that final shot also, I wanted to mention how beautiful this episode was visually. Scott Hornbacker is the director, and there was two moments that I particularly noticed. One was uh, with Ginsburg, where you're watching Ginsburg making that incredible speech through the reflection. Right. His back is to Peggy. But you're seeing his face in the the window. And then you see at the end, and that last shot with Don, as he's watching the team walk one way and Peggy walk the other way. You're also seeing the reflection of the of the flat of the uh, you know the New York City buildings and everything through the reflection of the window and the da da da. It was just gorgeous. And you you can't not mention the amazing art direction with that Howard Johnson, Ugh. which was an actual Howard Johnson's. I think they repainted it and gave it some spruce up for the show. But that's that was an actual Hojo's somewhere in California that they uh, produced on location, and um, just some of these shots, you know, the the pink. The pink towels on <laughs> Roger and Jane. Yeah, all the all the acid trip. The pink the pink towels and her blue. Unbelievable. It was yeah. it was a really stunning episode. Roger's hair with the black and white and the the Ted Knight look. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so much so much great stuff. So yeah, this is this stands out. Yeah, this is again. Where can the season go from here? But you know, we're no longer slowly rolling, going up a roller coaster, right? We are boom, we are riding the fucking. Yeah, <laughs> are, our hands are yeah. in the air, like whoa, this all just is happening right now. A Lo- lot of lot lot of matches and fuses lit here. Huge, huge stuff. So absolutely yeah. fantastic. And next time at the Codfish Ball. Okay, so <laughs> Signal Thirty, faraway places. At the Codfish Ball. I will put that up with any three episodes. Yeah. This this point in the series. Um, we did not get into that flashback scene, the car ride with Megan and Sally. Let's we'll do that over on our eminently chewable over in the Patreon. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. Bye y'all. If you would like to support the show, as many of our listeners do, go to patreon.com slash theycoineditpod. You get many bonus episodes and other treats. Another way to support us is to leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Email us at questions at theycoinedpod.com or on Twitter and Instagram at TCIMadmenPod. They Coined It is produced and edited by Roberta Lip. Our logo and merch graphics are by Albert Stern of Stickrest Arts. Our theme is from Adam Tilford. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dan Jasper. See you next time.